Hello folks, I'm Joe Van Hoogen, and this is The Bread of Life, a radio ministry of the International Mission Church Partnership Evangelism and its associate fellowship, The Bread of Life, in Boise, Idaho. Our ministry is going forward to countries around the world. To learn more, go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. It was 10 years ago that I was in Kiev, Ukraine. A brand new Christian woman was sharing with me a miracle God had provided for her. She and her husband needed housing. She had a dream that God would give her the nicest apartment in the apartment building that had just opened up for housing. There were more applicants for apartments in that building than there were apartments available. But she believed the dream was a promise from God. She told her unsaved husband, and he mocked her. Her God was going to let her down, he told her. The night came for a lottery of applicants to see if they had got the apartment for which they had applied. A drawing took place for each apartment, and all of them were given away, but the best apartment, each time without their names having been drawn. The last and best apartment was finally drawn for a number of individuals that had yet to find housing for themselves, and she was called forward. God had answered her prayers. Today, bombs are dropping upon Kiev, and I wonder if she's fled the country. I wonder if her unbelieving husband has now come to the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if he has remained to fight for his country. Is their apartment sound, or has it been struck by a missile? We pray that in the midst of man's wars, God's ward for the advance of the gospel and the salvation of souls will go forward. We pray that God will protect his people, fill them with peace and courage, and make them an oasis of hope. We pray that God would continue to work miracles for his people in Ukraine and in Russia too. And now to God's word. We're considering the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 25 verses 31 through 44. There Jesus told his disciples that he was the king who would set his earthly kingdom upon the earth. And then he would separate the sheep from the goats. That is, he would judge those who were worthy to enter into his messianic kingdom and those who were not. The message he told them he would give to the sheep was, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We're going to follow from your glorious throne and enter into that kingdom. You've gathered up a people from all the earth. Your sheep will be found by you and determined by you. And, And in this passage, the Lord Jesus is describing that day. That day. That's encouragement to the church. No matter what they suffer, no matter how difficult it is, it shall never be as tragic and as awful and as terrifying as the moment in which they saw Christ dying on the cross. But they'll have their own cross to bear. But they'll know that victory is there and to be found, and God will accomplish it. Here's the second thing. Here's a promise of the exaltation that will be theirs as they're brought into the reward of the kingdom. The early church in those centuries was made up almost entirely of the poorest and lowest of society. And yet the king is saying they're the ones that are going to be exalted. You can remember what Paul said describing the nature of the early church to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Let me read them to you. Lest we forget. Lest we think we're other than this. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to flesh, and not many mighty, and not many noble are called... But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not or nothing to bring to nothing the things that are. 
Bruce Shelley, who is a church historian, quotes an early Roman critic of the Christians named Celsus. And Celsus, within those first centuries of the early church, wrote a critique of Christianity and its movement into the Roman world. And this is what he said. He said, their aim is to convince only worthless and contemptible people, idiots, slaves, poor women and children. These are the only ones who they managed to bring into their believers. <laughs> well, Celsius was largely right. The language of the learned and the wealthy in that day was Latin. The language of the poor and the slaves was Greek. And it was Greek that was the language of the early church. Celsus came late to his condescending insight, though. Paul made it long ahead of him. The nothings. God had chosen the nothings. Here was a word for the lowly and the meek. God had chosen them to be the ones whom the risen, returning king would call to inhabit his righteous kingdom forever and ever and reign with him. There's the reward. There's the promise. There's what's coming. Whatever the disenfranchisement that you're experiencing, whatever the banishment you're experiencing from the lines of power in this age, in this moment, you'll be the ones who reign with me. Here's a third thing. Here, the suffering and persecuted church is reminded of the pathway into the kingdom. I don't know how far we'll get into this this morning. Let's see. This is the main point of our message. Here, the suffering and persecuted church is reminded of the pathway into the kingdom. Take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 8. This, by the way, is instruction that we find and a theme that is repeated over and over again in the letters of Paul, in the letters of Peter, in the writing of James. Romans 8, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That's a rather wonderful thing. We're heirs with the King. That's why we're a kingdom of priests and will reign with Him. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may be glorified also together, or we also may be glorified together. Our Savior asserted Himself as the King, and He put before us the vision of His glorious throne and of His universal sovereign power. He hinted of these things before when he taught and carried out his earthly ministry, but he only spoke of it by way of inference, but now he speaks of it very plainly at this moment in time. He was going to conquer. He was going to reign over a righteous kingdom that God had planned for the earth. He said all these things. He declared all these things plainly. And finally, after saying all that, that one thing the disciples were waiting for him to unveil and declare, that reason why they were following him, because they hoped that he was going to be the king. It was the one thing that they waited to have him. He hinted of it. He spoke to it. He intimated. Each time he drew near it, though, he drew back again. Each time it seemed he was going to become the king, he would retreat from the people as they sought to make him king. But now, at this moment, he finally speaks to his disciples and speaks of himself as the king who inherits. The glorious throne. Then after he said all those things, after finally having said it, he went to the cross and he died. Jesus did not suffer the agonies of the cross without a promise before him though. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us of the Lord Jesus that he suffered for the joy that was set before him. In other words, there was a prospect of glory and joy and triumph 
so great to be found in the suffering of the cross that he was willing to go there. Now the Lord Jesus has called upon his disciples to take up the cross and follow him, that they must be willing to suffer as well, that they must serve alongside of him and go into the agonies of that service and the agonies of his work to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he tells them of this suffering, but he doesn't ask them to suffer without the prospects of the promise as well. He puts before them as well. He promises them of a day in which the king shall come and a kingdom shall be established and they shall be called up into it and they shall participate in it forever and ever. He calls upon us to bear our cross and to be willing to follow him and the disciples will learn exactly what that means and they will discover what it means to suffer with him. They'll ultimately all of them die as martyrs but one and Many of them will suffer greater physical agonies than the Lord Jesus suffered in his own death upon the cross. He told them that their mission would bring them into great dangers, that it would bring upon them a rejection of family and nation and persecution and even death. He told them that it would be the inevitable consequences of their choosing to follow him and serve him and pursue his goal and his aims and live in obedience to him. But then he lets them know there was a kingdom up ahead Glory, eternal glory to be gained. And after that, after that, after telling that, the Lord Jesus walked out through the cross to gain the crown. And he calls us to do the same thing. He calls us to do the same thing. I say this by way of transition, kind of carrying this thought forward here along a little bit. This pathway of suffering is one that comes to those who are committed to caring for Christ's people, who are committed to caring and seeking Christ himself, who are committed to carrying out the business of the Savior, the proclamation of the gospel. I want you to see something here in our text. Although all the nations are gathered before the Lord at this time, before he sets up his kingdom, and all the peoples of the nation are before the king, it it seems to me that those who are particularly being judged are those who identify themselves as his followers, those who somehow consider themselves to be a part of the flock. And so his flock is before him, but his flock must be sorted out because there are sheep within that flock, but there are also goats in the flock. There are those who have been true followers of himself, but there are also those who have been false and untrue in their following of him. He divides the sheep from the goats. And so just for a moment, don't consider that this is just a message for everybody who attends church on Sunday and states the creeds and believes that Jesus died for their sins and then all the other people who don't believe those things and are outside the walls of the church. It's not the case. The very language of it, the very protest that those who are brought under judgment give. When did we see these things from you, Lord? Expresses that they... They were moving along with the crowd. They were engaged in the various activities. They remind us of the voice of those who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not serve you and do all kinds of miracles in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. I go back to what we read in Jude. When the Lord Jesus gives us these pictures and portraits of the judgment that comes at the end of days, Before he establishes his kingdom, he gives us an image and pictures of the nation gathered before him, but then he turns our focus, particularly by way of application, upon the church, upon the judgment of those who are true and those who are false within the church and the professors themselves. And I think that's what we should see here. There are sheep for sure in his flock, but there are goats as well. In my mind, I don't believe this passage actually in a sense, stipulates clearly what will be the judgment that will fall upon the wicked who have never heard the gospel outside the structure and the experience and the expressions of the body of Christ on earth, the visible church. 
Peter actually says this in 1 Peter 4.17. If judgment begins with the house of God, what shall be the end for those who do not obey the gospel? And he indicates to us that when God begins his judgments and renders his judgments, the first place that we'll turn to render his judgments are those who proclaim to be a part of the house of God. And I think what we're reading about in this passage, in Matthew, in essence, is a portrait of the judgment that begins with the house of God. And we're not told exactly what happens for those who are outside the house of God. Peter intimates that it'll be even worse. Well, shall it be for those who are outside and do not obey the gospel? terrible thing to fall in the hands of the living God but it's the house that's in view here the true sheep that come before him receive the invitation for him to come and to enter into his kingdom but the goats those who have been untrue and those who have been false are sent away into unending judgment and so this day is still ahead of us it's an actual day in an actual place upon this actual earth at an actual point in time And as surely as Christ has suffered and died in Jerusalem, as surely as he is buried and rose again, as surely as he has ascended into heaven, he's coming again, and the hour of that judgment will take place. I want to direct you now to a different website at the end of our broadcast than I usually do. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 commands that the Christian test themselves to see if they're in the faith. In answer to this command, and with the desire to bring Christians into a sound and true assurance of saving faith, we've developed a website and a book for this purpose. Go to SavingEvangelicals.com and take the test and order the book by the same name, Saving Evangelicals. I can't think of a more important book for our day. Again, thanks for listening to The Bread of Life. Until the next time, may God bless you.